privilege of hearing from the Word of the Living God, and if you'll open your copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew for some time, sequential exposition. We're exposing ourselves to all that uh, the Lord has said in this first Gospel, and it is helpful to us spiritually. Uh, let me let you know a secret. Um, many times preachers do not preach verse by verse through a text, a uh, book of the Bible. They have to encounter texts that can be difficult, uh, texts that they don't particularly like to talk about. But when you're forced to go through a book of the Bible, you have to cover all that God has said. And that's good uh, for you uh, that you might learn uh, in what the Word of God has to say. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 7. Let me just read the verses that we'll speak from this morning and set them uh, in your mind afresh. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, you will, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm using the subject for these verses this morning, real greatness, real Greatness In the world of sports, some athletes have performed at an exceptional level during the life of their careers. I wasn't one of them. <laughs> and they have been dubbed thereby the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Greatness, however, is not only attributed to outstanding athletes, but to others who have made a remarkable achievements in their respective fields of endeavor are their particular discipline. And this is true in the spiritual realm as well, as well. We see a form of the word great is used in our text in verse 11 that I just read you a moment ago. You see the word greater used twice in that text by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it describes those who belong to him. It is Jesus' perspective on greatness. You want to know what real greatness is? Hear what Jesus has to say about it. Our passage provides his viewpoint. Our passage tells us what constitutes genuine greatness. And you need to understand right away it has nothing to do whatsoever with worldly accomplishments, but everything to do with godly living eternal saving truth and service for him and his kingdom. John the Baptist was a great man. In this passage, we see his greatness unfolded. 
and we will behold real greatness. Greatness that can belong to the children of God. Anyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have to begin with the first hallmark of greatness. And we'll label that uh, spiritual conviction. And that's our first heading. Spiritual conviction. Jesus remarks about John the Baptist came on the heels of John's perplexity and confusion about Jesus as to whether he was the expected one. You may recall that from last week's message. He was really confused because the way things turned out, the turn of events, he was imprisoned and he wasn't certain then, are you the expected one or are we to look for someone else? You recall he sent his intermediaries, his disciples to Jesus to inquire of him just about that reality. And Jesus, in response to the question from John, demonstrated by his miraculous works, yes, John, I am the expected one. My works demonstrated. In fact, as you hear the report of the miracles that these men are going to bring to you, you'll understand that it's a preview of the coming kingdom, that my coming reign where you'll see these things in abundance and you, so you'll need to understand, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the coming one. Now, those men are gone. Verse 7, you'll see it there. As these men were going away, then Jesus turned his attention to the crowds who had observed this. They had uh, overheard the conversation and no doubt percolating in their thinking was, well, who is this John? Is, it really, is he really the prophet that we thought? Is he really the spokesman for God that we thought? And not only will that impact John, but also Jesus. Jesus turns to the crowds. And what our Lord does, he begins to speak to them. He wants them to know that John the Baptist was not unfaithful to the word of God, that John was indeed a man of conviction. And we read here in the text, as we did a moment ago, Jesus provides six rhetorical questions to the crowd so that they may hear and understand who John the Baptist is and see his greatness and that he was a genuine prophet of God. Jesus begins here, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? That's verse 7. Let's stop there and, and for a moment and explain what's going on there. People flock to the wilderness to hear John prophesy or preach. In fact, uh, this was a signal in, uh, moment in the history of Israel. This is a monumental moment in Israel's history because f after 400 years of silence, divine silence God had not spoken for four centuries and suddenly on the stage of redemptive history in Israel there is a prophet and he is prophesying the location of his pulpit if you will was located in the wilderness 40 verse 3 prophesied about John seven centuries before he came on the scene and it said about him a voice crying in the wilderness. John himself, when people came to inquire about who he was, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 23, he said about himself, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John said he was a voice. In his humility, he did not claim to be someone of importance 
He deflected attention away from himself and on to the Lord. He said, make the way for the Lord. The Lord being Messiah. He is coming. Make the way straight for him. Now, you need to understand what John was saying when he uttered those words. The background is important to comprehend the meaning of biblical text. Jesus didn't, and John didn't, and the biblical writers didn't just use words. Uh, they connected to the audience who would understand the meaning of the words in the context of spiritual truth. A monarch traveling in the wilderness regions would have a crew go ahead and make sure the road was clear of debris, obstructions and potholes and other impediments so that when he arrived there, his traveling would be smooth. In a metaphorical sense, John was calling on people when he said, make straight the way of the Lord, to prepare their hearts, prepare your hearts for Messiah. The question may be raised, well, how can you do that? And John had already preached earlier in John, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you do it, repent. Turn away from sin. Remove the obstacles, remove the impediments, remove the potholes, remove all the things that will block the coming of the Lord into your life. Repent. Doing about faith, say, I'm done with that life, I, and now I'm going to go this way, I'm going to follow the Lord. That's what it means. That's how you make way, the way straight. Jesus asked another question, verse 7, the bottom of the verse. When he asked, would you go out into the wilderness to see, here's this, the question, a reed shaken by the wind? Again, you need to know why Jesus would pick that particular term, a reed shaken by the wind. You see, reeds were cane grass, and they were found in abundance along the Jordan River. And you remember the Jordan River is where John did his baptizing. And so the people were quite well aware of reeds, and they knew the nature of reeds, uh, those reeds that were in abundance. So when he said reeds, all of them immediately understood what Jesus was talking about. And, and Jesus says here, a reed shaken by the wind. So he compares John to a reed. Did you go out to see somebody who was flexible? Somebody who was swayed by the wind? What Jesus is saying about John the Baptist when he asked this question is, he was stating that John was not fickle. He wasn't, to use a different metaphor, a weather vane preacher. One who followed the winds of public opinion. He was not a man pleaser, but a God pleaser. He stood resolutely on the word of God and proclaimed it without fear or favor. It didn't matter to him what men thought. He was going to proclaim the word of God. That's, that's what conviction is. When you have deeply rooted conviction in the truths of the word of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else has to say about it. You're going to stand steadfast and proclaim that truth. And that's what John did. See, when they went out to see him, they weren't going out to see somebody and say, well, you don't like that? Okay, I, I, I changed my measure. No, no, no. This is what thus said the Lord. Paul was like that. He, he was a man who was resolute. He was a man who was uncompromising like John. In fact, Paul, 
states this reality in, uh, in Galatians chapter 1. The gospel was under attack. The gospel was being assaulted by false teachers that found their way into the churches of Galatia, and they were undermining the truth of the true gospel with false teaching about the gospel. And Paul written, had written to these people, and Paul was standing steadfast on the gospel of Christ, the true gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, for our purposes, Paul makes this statement. You can see it there in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Let me just give you the bottom line. You cannot please men at the cost of compromising, uh, please God at the cost of compromising to men. Either you're going to stand for the gospel or you won't. Either you're going to say, this is what the Lord said, this is the truth or not. That's what spiritual conviction is. John's conviction about divine truth sh shaped his life. It shaped Paul's life. It shaped his ministry. Both John and Paul were steadfast. They're loyal to Christ. They were loyal to the truth, the truth given in the Word of God. It's a hallmark of their greatness, a hallmark of the greatness of John the Baptist. And the reality, when we, when we hold fast to the truths of Scripture and the biblical revelation about Jesus Christ, we exhibit the same kind of conviction. And you need to understand, uh, our, our world uh, doesn't hold the same views that we do about the truth. Our world is rapidly changing. Our culture is rapidly changing. Biblical morality is repudiated. You can see it all around you. The people say there are no absolutes. There's no absolute morality. Yes, there's no time in the people. Adultery is always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. Idolatry is always wrong. Covetousness is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. There is no exception to the Ten Commandments. God doesn't say, well, you can do this one because I understand. No, 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 no. It's always wrong. That's absolute truth. That's under assault. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ is under assault. People are rejecting him. They're rejecting the reality that he alone is the only Savior. Well, uh, how do we know your way is right? There was a lady, I was in the bank the other day um, doing some banking business, um, and somehow the gospel came up. I can't remember what it did. I, was, I talked to her and this other man, and she said she was agnostic, and she said all religions are the same. I said, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. We're going to fix that. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, in a bank, nobody in there, all that money and nobody's there but me and these two people. <laughs> so I began to explain. I said, no, no, there are only two religions in the world. Right one and wrong one. The wrong one says it's human achievement. All the religions in the world fit in that category. The right one says divine accomplishment. It's what God did through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the grace that he grants to those who believe. That is the only religion that is right. And you know, we have to proclaim that no matter where we are, with, no matter with whom we are, we must stand steadfast on those truths, right? 
the gospel must be shared. And we'll, we'll be out in a minority, and increasingly a minority, but we must stand for the truth because the gospel is the only way people will ever get into heaven. And there are some people who deny the gospel who even claim to be Christians. You say, well, I understand what's going on there. Anybody can make a claim. Amen. I can claim to be a jolly green giant, to be facetious, facetious. But my claim is obviously wrong. To be great in divine eyes involves, requires maintaining and proclaiming divine revelation. You must do it without compromise, but with conviction. And you must live it. You must be the incarnation of divine truth. Let me do under, underscore that there must be a coupling of conviction and living it out. When you proclaim it, live it. There should not be a divorce between what we claim and what our convictions are and how we live. Those two must go together. Amen. Now, this conviction it continues. It carries on. And you can see here in the word, verse 8, Jesus, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. On the surface, it seems that the prophet's dress wear was irrelevant, but it wasn't. Soft clothing was the attire of the self-indulgent, the spiritually soft, the compromisers of spiritual truth. If they wanted to get a, go along to get along, they would let sleeping dogs lie. For example, historians tell us some scribes would don the attire of kings to silence criticism. Scribes, supposedly experts in divine law, well, what they would do so they could deflect any criticism, they would dress to appear as if they're not part of that which they claim to uphold. John did no such thing. John's garb was rough camel hair. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. John, John the Baptist, his attire was such that he would never, ever walk down the runway in Milan. He wouldn't be at Fashion Week in Paris. In fact, his clothing linked him with the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1. His clothing indicated a lifestyle of self-denial. One commentator writes about him, quote, even the dress of John preached. End of quote. When people walked out there and they saw him, said, that's a prophet. That's a spokesman for God. Look at how he dressed. That reminds me of the old prophet. That reminds me of Elijah. That kind of, oh, this man speaking for God. Then he opens his mouth and he prophesies he preaches just kind of man he was spiritual conviction the next point is special privilege special privilege Jesus again rhetorically but what did you go out to see a prophet yes I tell you and one who is more than a prophet Yes, 
John was a prophet. That's why they flocked out there. God is speaking through this man, this human vessel. But he is more than a prophet. And Jesus explains what he means by that. He says, that text that you are all familiar with, Malachi 3, verse 1, the A portion, the bold letters there, it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's the quotation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the A portion. Jesus says, it was written about John the Baptist. Long before John the Baptist was conceived and born, that was about four centuries, Malachi prophesied John the Baptist's coming. John the Baptist was the subject of prophecy. Not only did he prophesy himself, but he was the subject of prophecy. That's why he's more than a prophet. God, in eternity past, planned John's life and ministry. Think about that. God, uh, the Trinity, determined that John the Baptist would be born at a particular time in a particular place by particular parents, and he would be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Malachi revealed it there four centuries before the man was born in this text. But we're not surprised about that, are we? Because we know God's sovereign. People rise on the stage of history because God raises them up. People just aren't born willy-nilly. No, 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 no. God is the one who determined that they would come to life and live at a particular moment in history, just like you. Did you not know that your time right now is because God determined that you would live right now? That's why you weren't born in the 1860s. And I'm going to show you something. Let, let me illustrate that. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5. And if you don't get there in time, don't worry about it. Just listen and jot it down, read it later. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Jeremiah writing, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Whoa. Before I, Yahweh, formed you, Jeremiah, in your mother's womb, I knew you. I'd already set my love on you. I had chosen you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, we can extrapolate from this because we know that if you're, we're Christians, and uh, we know that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God set his love on us before we were conceived in our mother's womb. He determined that we would be born and he determined that we would come to know Jesus Christ and that we would serve him. He did all of that before we ever occupied our mother's womb, before the gestation period began. Just like he did Jeremiah. Just like he did. A man, John the Baptist. 
God who's sovereign over everything determined that we'd be born and we would serve him. That's our God. Now chapter 11 back here with John. We'll just take a moment to unpack what is being said here. Yahweh, behold, I send my messenger. My messenger refers to Yahweh, God the Father. The messenger, as we've already said it, because Jesus identified John the Baptist. And it says, ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you, Messiah. That's what the text is saying. Yahweh said, my messenger will go ahead of you and he will prepare the way before you. Jesus, by saying the words here and applying them to John and John being his forerunner, forerunner, Jesus' application of this text to John implies his own coming. Indeed. Indeed it is. Then in verse 11, the portion, Jesus begins to talk further about the greatness Uh, explaining the greatness here of John truly I say to you among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist exclamation point arisen that is come on to the stage of history no one greater than John and that ought to be a puzzler scratcher of the head when you think about it when John came oh wait 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 what greater than anyone up to this point what about Abraham greater than him Uh, what about Moses the great lawgiver greater than him Uh, wait a minute what about David you establish a covenant with him the Davidic covenant Messiah would come through him David the the great king of Israel greater than him oh what about Elijah he was caught up and taken to heaven he didn't die greater than him Jesus said he was greater than those spiritual luminaries. How how can this be? John's greatness lay in the fact that he was a forerunner of Christ and he pointed men to him. The angel of the Lord said about John in Luke chapter 1 verse 15 these words, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will turn many of the souls of Israel back to the Lord, their God. Before John was born, the angel of the Lord said, John would be great and his greatness would consist in part in the fact that he would turn many rebellious sinners in Israel back to the Lord. This is greatness. Ministry that results in salvation. This is greatness. Pointing men to Christ that this is greatness. May I ask you a question? What is more important in the world than a man or a woman coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Turning them to him. What is more important than that? There is nobody in heaven who would say something else. 
And everybody in hell would rise up and acclaim, yes, there's something greater. Somebody pointed me to him. This is greatness. Ah, verse 11. He says, the B portion, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? <laughs> the least believer, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist? You kidding me? No, I'm not. That's what Jesus said. How is it so? Our greatness consists in the fact that we have a fuller, clearer revelation of Messiah and his saving work this side of the cross. John didn't know as much as we know. We have the great spiritual privilege, special privilege of knowing all that we know about Messiah, Jesus. We, we know about the atonement. We know what the atonement accomplished. John didn't have the epistles New Testament epistles. He died before Christ died. He didn't know all that God had planned. He didn't know all of that, but we do. And we're in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom. And because we have that fuller revelation and because we can tell others, we are greater even than John the Baptist. You, you, you may not win a Nobel Prize. You may not be listen who's who, or maybe you may be listen who's who. But I'm going to tell you something. Those things are meaningless in terms of greatness compared to what you have in Christ and your knowledge of him and the privilege of sharing him with others. God said that's what makes you great. So, you know what, we need, to, we need to reevaluate our thinking. Because oftentimes we think like the world. The world says, this is the great person. And Jesus says, no. Not so. And I'm going to show you at the end of this message where the great people without Christ are and why it doesn't matter. I'm not saying don't accomplish anything in the world, but do understand it's transitory. It's temporary. Do your best, do all of that, but do understand it's temporary. Only the things that are related to Christ, his kingdom, his service, are the things that last. Keep that in mind. That's the biblical perspective. Now it says here in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. John's ministry lasted about 18 months. That was short. But John accomplished everything that God wanted him to accomplish. In fact, John's um, ministry was a bridge. It, it uh, connected two eras. The Old Testament era of promise concluded with John the Baptist because all of the Old Testament was an era of promise. God was promising Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. You just go through Genesis to Revelation. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. New Testament era is the era of fulfillment. It's no longer Messiah's coming, Messiah has come. 
And John was the bridge. He's the last Old Testament prophet, but he is also the first representative of Christ in the New Testament. The new era of fulfillment. But John's preaching evokes strong response. That's why we have that, this language of violence here in our text. John, when he came preaching, he evoked um, strong response because it unsettled the status quo spiritually. You see, John was not a uh, prophet who would tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And that rankled them. You see, John came denouncing sin. He came talking about judgment. He came preaching repentance. And folk didn't like that. Remember Herod? When John confronted him, said, you can't have your brother Philip's wife. That's unlawful. That violates the word of God. He said, oh, well, I ain't taking that. Lock him up. Suffers violence. Now, I'm going to have to be a little scholarly and grammatical here. You don't mind? Well, I got to do it. Okay? Suffers violence. Biazzo is the word, Greek word translated there. The middle and passive voices in the Greek are same form. Whenever Greek students, New Testament, Koine Greek, they read it and they see the form, they have to determine, okay, this is passive Middle, what does the author mean? Because the form is the same. You can't distinguish what he means by the form because middle voice, passive voice is the same. If that's the case here, suffers violence. The middle voice of the verb means that the kingdom of heaven applies force. The passive voice of the verb carries the idea that the kingdom is being assaulted. It is being treated violently. It's being acted upon, whereas the previous one it is doing the acting since now. They're both true. Suffer violence. I told you John was in prison and would be beheaded in a short time. The second one is true as well. Violent men take it by force. What on earth does this mean? I know you want to know, don't you? Some of you do, okay. <laughs> we'll go to, go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Here's a verse I think it helps us. Helps us understand what is being stated. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Verse 16, I'm sorry. Verse 16. 16, 16 of Luke. Verse 16 of Luke 16 says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. They're forcing his way into it. I think that's what's going on here in the second one. Violent men take it by force when it says that in Matthew chapter uh, 11. So what do we mean? 
forcing their way into it. Well, what does that mean, forcing their way, their way into it? I think uh, this is a reminder of the fact that entering the kingdom is a hard and difficult struggle. Salvation is not by human effort, mind you. But repentance involves the will acting in self-denial, right? To come into the kingdom, you must deny yourself. You have to deny your sin, your, your flesh, your, all of that. You've got to say, I'm done with that. You, you can't come into the kingdom with your sins. You know, Jesus said, come just as you are. Yeah, he said, come in repentance. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he says. It's a struggle. You can deny yourself. Turn away from your sin, your fleshly desires. You're going to take up a cross, that is commitment, even to the point you possibly could die. And then you follow me, Jesus said, means I'm your leader now. You no longer chart your own path, you now follow me. I'm Lord. That cuts across how we think and live, right? Because we said, no, I ain't denying myself, I'm going to indulge myself. I'm going to get what I want when I want it. If I can get it in a uh, hook or crook, I'm going to get it. <laughs> Take it up across, man. I ain't dying for anybody. I'm just going to keep on living, man. I'm going to live my life. And, I, and follow somebody, only those who agree with me make me feel all right. She said, no. This is what real Christianity is. It's difficult. To be a Christian is to swim against the flow of the world. It's to go against the grain. Following the Lord demands earnest endeavor. We have some powerful forces against us, Satan and his demons. That's what it means. The world is no friend of grace. The world's not going to help you live the Christian life. In fact, it's going to seek to undermine it. But you have to deny yourself. And that self-denial is something you're going to be doing the rest of your life till you get to heaven, right? You're going to deny your flesh. Taking up your cross. Luke 9.23 says, do it daily follow me it's the reality now at Matthew 11 verse 13 I've already said it and I'm say it again for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John from Genesis to Malachi the Old Testament pointed forward toward Christ or Messiah Messiah is coming I've said it already I'll say it again and now Messiah is here and in verse 14 Jesus says 
And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. John was not literally Elijah. Jesus didn't mean that. John 1, 21, John denied it as well. He came, according to Luke 1, 17, Eli, uh, John did. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, he was called in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, Elijah thy Jesus. So what does it mean? Accepting John as Elijah would have meant accepting him as the forerunner of Messiah and thus accepting Jesus as Messiah. But you know, many of them in Israel did not. They rejected it, rejected him. Jesus utters these famous words. You read them in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. You read them elsewhere in the gospel. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Heed the voice of Jesus in Scripture. Hear what he's saying. This is a sermon about greatness. And I've effectively contrasted greatness from the divine perspective to greatness from the world's perspective, right? Have I not done that? If y'all been paying attention, you say amen. <laughs> I want you to look at a passage I refer to often. Revelation chapter 20. I'm asking you to turn there because I want you to see it with your own eyes. We, we're going to go prophetically to the end of history, human history. Revelation chapter 20. Are you there? Listen to the Apostle John's words. And I saw the dead. Do understand that these dead are raised up to be at this place, the great white throne judgment. Who did he see? The great and the small. Two groups of people. He's not talking about stature, physically. The great and the small. He's talking about the small. Let's start with that group. The, the small are the nobodies who are unrepentant. They died in their sins. They had their little petty sins. They lived their little petty lives of rebellion, doing whatever they wanted to do. They died unrepentant and went to Hades, and they're being resurrected to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ of the white throne judgment, and they will be sentenced to the lake of fire. Uh, the small. The world's eyes, the nobodies. But the great. You see that? The great. These are, in the world's eyes, the somebodies. They loom large on the stage of world history. Think about, when you start thinking about great people, you think about people like, say, Napoleon Bonaparte, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, 
Think about the great men who have strode across the history of the world and people hold them up. Oh, he is great, he was a world conqueror, he did this and he did that and so on and so forth. People like that are going to be here. They're the great. They died in their sins. They've spent centuries in Hades. They're going to be raised up to stand before Jesus Christ. All their earthly accomplishments, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. They were great in the life, but they're going to go to the lake of fire. And all their greatness, meaningless. You know who's not here? The children of God. Jesus says, great will be your reward for our service. Our greatness will follow us into eternity. It's real greatness. Aim for that. Aim to be great in God's eyes for the glory of Christ and the joy of your own heart both in time and eternity. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the reality uh, uh, that Scripture gives to us. So often we uh, think about the world and its presentations and its claims. We need the reality of the Scripture to show us the way things really are, what really matters. Help us to take these truths to heart by your Spirit live in the light of them for the glory of God in Christ. Amen.